Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is an interview with John McHugo, who has written an article in the July issue of History Today on Syria, caught in a trap. And John, uh, you argue that we can only really understand recent Syrian history or Syrian history since it became an independent state and a little bit before that in the 20th century. Um, If we bear in mind its troubled relationship with the West. Uh, Yes, that is absolutely right. Um, But I do want to make one thing clear at the outset. I'm not trying to blame the West for everything that has gone wrong in Syria. That would be stupid. But what what the West has done is played a role that's very often been very um, frustrating for Syrians. Um, And the problem has really been that the West has allowed Syria to be uh, caught up in proxy wars, which it has encouraged. Um, It has very often frustrated uh, legitimate Syrian concerns. Uh, So this is all just part of the general picture. You cannot claim that the sectarianism that's uh, increasingly plaguing Syria was caused by the West. So I think you can say that in some respects uh, the West has added by adding fuel to the fire. And this relationship, this troubled relationship, um, has its origins in the breakup of the Ottoman Empire? Yes. Um, I'm not sure saying the breakup of the Ottoman Empire is the right way to describe it. Um, but certainly when the Ottoman Empire lost the First World War, leaving um, the Allied powers um, in occupation of Syria, primarily the British. Um, And of course, at that stage, there was no such thing as a uh, defined country called Syria. Uh, In Arabic, people talked of greater Syria. um, And quite interestingly, in Arabic, the word for Damascus is also often used for Syria. There's an Arab word, Sham, which means both Damascus and Syria. But when Sham is used, it means all the area from the Sinai Desert up, actually up into the Taurus Mountains, which are now well inside uh, what remains of Turkey. Um, I call that Greater Syria, and many other people do as well, just so that people can understand it. And what happened was that the victorious powers in the First World War then decided to partition this area in the way that suited them. They were meant to be thinking about the wishes and needs of the people of this area, but those concerns came very much second to their own ambition. The political frontiers of Syria, Lebanon and Jordan, for instance, were all crafted by chiefly uh, British and French diplomats working in Paris at the peace conference and afterwards. And those became the, the League of Nations mandate. And that in itself put those countries in a straitjacket. 
they had their the people there had their own ideas of what sort of self-determination they would have liked. Um, it wasn't all clear-cut. I'm not saying everything would have been rosy in the garden, but they could have had a process of their own self-determination. And this is something that the uh, British and the French denied them. So can you tell us something, John, about the, uh, the coming of Syrian independence and how that was also affected by, I suppose, one of the most important relationships that Syria has, and that is the creation of the State of Israel as well. Yes. Um, of course, the whole um, Zionist project, the Balfour Declaration, the Palestine Mandate, with the commitment to um, establishing a national home for the Jewish people within the boundaries of that mandate west of the Jordan, all of that was part of what the Western powers decided to inflict on the people of Greater Syria without asking their consent. And when at the end, in the years after World War II, um, Britain withdrew from uh, Palestine, largely or maybe entirely because of Zionist pressure and what one can only call terrorism, uh, it made all Arabs in other countries very worried about what was going to happen Palestinian society collapsed under the impact of the uh, militias that later became the Israeli army. Um, there was complete and utter chaos. And in international law, the neighboring states did have a right to intervene to help the native population there. But, of course, um, they lost that war. Israel was established. But it left a terrible legacy. At that stage, Syria, as we know it today, was a very, very young democracy. It had only been independent for about a year and a half, fully independent. And the strain that this conflict put on that democracy was something that made it much harder for it to survive. And what kind of a state was that infant Syria, when you call it a, a, a democracy, what, 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 was, what was the state of play there? Who was running the place? Well, the people who were really influential in Syria at that time were what are often called the notable families. That is to say, the families that had a bit of wealth and class and therefore influence. And as Syria became a democracy, people would tend very much to vote for the candidate proposed by their notable. It might be a tribal sheikh, it might be your landowner, it might be the guy you worked for, it would very likely be a member of your extended family. So you had this culture of influential families, and rising up against that, you had the nationalist movement, um, who really wanted to sweep all that aside. Um, in fact, they Nationalism does not always have a very good reputation because, of course, it leads to wars and conflicts of identity. But one can sympathise with these um, nationalists. And a very young man who was um, a schoolboy, I think, stood at that time, called Hafez al-Assad, uh, was shocked when, at his secondary school, he discovered that the boys from influential families uh, could basically tell the teacher what to do and what marks they should be awarded in exams. Syria was a country with great social divide, great inequality, and there was 
And it's not surprising that there was a passionate yearning among many, many Syrians for something better. And at that time, they saw it in the Arab nationalist movement. But there's quite a gap, isn't there, between the establishment of Israel um, in 1948 and the coming of the Ba'at party in the, the 63 military coup, um, which, which led to um, the Assad regime, Hafez, the father of the current um, leader of Syria. Um, what was the state of play then? Because you argue, for example, that the Six-Day War of 1967, uh, when Israel was victorious over its Arab neighbours, in a spectacular military success, um, led to the militarisation of Syrian society. But does militarisation of Syrian society not predate the 67 war? It certainly was beginning well before then, yes, you're quite right. But the, uh, I mean, the Ba'ath was founded during the Second World War by a Sunni Muslim and an Orthodox Christian. Um, as I said, it was meant to be an ideology that would appeal to all Arabs and would unite Arabs. Contested elections, and it also infiltrated the officer corps in the army. And during the 1950s, you had, in 49, there were, there were two military coups. And Syria was ruled by generals till 1954. After that, uh, civilian politics came back for a while. But people had, rulers had to look over their shoulders at the army. And at that stage, the Ba'ath had come to the fore. Um, and also followers of President Nasser in Egypt. And in 1958, um, there was a brief period when um, Syria and Egypt were even united in a single state. Syria broke away in 1961 from that. But in this period, I think you can certainly say that uh, Syria was becoming a more militarized society. The Six-Day War made all that much worse because effectively... Israel, um, sorry, Syria had to go onto a war footing. Uh, it fought another war with Israel six years later in 1973, but that did not lead to a peace treaty. It did not lead to the restoration of lost Syrian territory. And national service, which is a big thing in Syria, has carried on right to this day. But in many ways, it seems as though the army, the military in Syria, allied to the Ba'at Party, has been the stabiliser to some extent. And it's an interesting question, I suppose, to ask why Syria, um, once a nascent democracy, has found it difficult to be progressive, while at the same time Israel, which faces just as great, if not greater, military threats, manages to be a liberal democracy and has pretty high living standards uh, and manages to be progressive in many parts, in, in many aspects of it. What is that gulf about? Uh, that is a very good question. And one thing one could also point out is that there is a militarization of Israeli society mm -hmm. as well, which is in reaction to the um, security situation, the security dilemmas that Israelis face. And um, commentators have compared the militarization of Israeli and um, Syrian society. In answer to your question, I think that the problems are several that Syria faced. First of all, it had to establish national unity, and that was always going to be a difficult thing. Really, Syria needed to be left in peace by the outside world. 
without interference to be able to sort that out. And that would have taken a while. Secondly, when the revolutionaries came to power, there was an incredibly low standard of literacy in Syria. Um, I don't know any statistics for Syria at that time, but in Iraq at the time of the 1958 revolution, it was thought perhaps 15% of the population was literate. I doubt if it was much more in Syria, probably less. Also, um, the Ba'athists and uh, other Arab nationalists saw the solution to their problem as very much being the adoption of socialism. And that led to nationalization, it led to the flight of capital, it led to the flight of the cream of the nation's commercial elite, many things that hindered the economy. Um, in Israel, on the other hand, um, you've had very vigorous support uh, from international Jewish communities, which have um, allowed money and investment and sent good people to settle in Israel, people bringing skills and, uh, and capital as well. And there was none of that in, in Syria. Um, so I think it's very difficult to compare the two societies. Perhaps you could say they were societies at different stages. Um, also, the immigrants to Israel and before that to mandatory Palestine who came from Europe, of course, tended to include some very highly educated people, very many talented people. And when you compare that with the situation in Syria at the time, the low level of literacy, the low level of things like health care, rural electricity and water, poor communication, Syria had massive problems to tackle, um, which were different from Israel. I'm not saying Israel didn't have problems, of course. It, it had many. It had to assimilate all immigrants. But the Syrian problems, I think, were different. And that's the reason for the different progression between the two countries. You um, could also add that, of course, Syria happened to be on the losing side in the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a point I was going to come to, because um, Syria's key ally today uh, is Russia mm -hmm. um, and China. Um, how much is that a continuation of the Cold War? And I suppose you've almost answered this question as it goes. How was... Syria affected by the Cold War, which of course it ended up on the losing side. Yes. Um, I mean, a problem there, for instance, is that the American diplomacy, although of course they loved the idea of a comprehensive Middle East peace, um, many American diplomats noticeably, well not diplomats, but politicians, you know, secretaries of state and people, were much more interested in the Cold War in sorting out the Arab-Israeli problem. Um, Patrick Steele, the biographer of Hafez al-Assad, points out, for instance, how Henry Kissinger had no real interest in doing anything but detach uh, Egypt from the Soviet orbit. And that, of course, meant that um, Syria lost its key military ally. Uh, that, of course, had a, a further negative impact on the um, militarization of um, society. Um, fast forwarding to the end of the Cold War, um, there were strong links between what became Russia and uh, Syria. I remember going to Aleppo once in the early 90s and finding everywhere there were signs up in Cyrillic and lots of goods were being imported from the uh, former Soviet Union. 
now, of course, through free enterprise rather than through um, state organization. But there's been this long um, tradition of friendship between the Syria of the Baathist and Eastern Europe. Um, in fact, the young pioneers in Syria, the uh, youth movement, were inspired by that of uh, North Korea, because mm -hmm. Hafez al-Assad once, once went there on a visit and was greeted by lots of uh, children dancing and waving national flags, and he admired the way they were, you know, they were so disciplined and so on, and he said, we need something like that back in Syria. One of the reasons for studying history, it's often suggested, is so that we can navigate the future. What do you think the future for Syria holds? Is there any chink of light at all there? Well, the only chink of light, frankly, is if the big powers, and today that includes not just America and the European Union uh, and Russia, but it also includes major regional actors like Iran and Saudi Arabia. The only thing is if they can all stop playing proxy wars that is what has gone on. We were talking about the Arab-Israeli dispute as an example of that. But today, um, you have a kind of, you have Saudi Arabian support in particular for people with a particular view of what Syria should become, and who are not necessarily that inclined to democracy and what we would consider modern freedom. They are fighting on the one hand. On the other hand, you have Iran and um, Hezbollah fighting to shore up the regime uh, directly or indirectly. And these kinds of proxy wars have to end. You have to have um, the end of military support for the regime. But also, there has, what has to be happen? What, sorry, what has to happen is that the international community has forced all sides. Syria, because it is all sides. You can't just talk about the government and the opposition. And get civil society involved and well, as well, and get everyone to sit down and talk together. And that won't happen so long as people are playing their games in the Middle East with ulterior motives, something that goes back to the Cold War and goes back to the periods of the mandates before that. And I suspect that's rather harder in practice than in theory. I'm afraid you're right. Oh, well, thank you, John. That's a fascinating topic, and um, thank you.